G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. I want to go back to the Word of God to give us some wisdom of what the Bible says about this intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff gets real about marital relations, the intimate side of marriage, the act of marriage when two become one. In his message, Bedroom, Battleground, Playground. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. Number one is because Jesus talked about it. The Apostle Paul talked about it. And an entire book called the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament talks about it. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have been in a series called Welcome Home. And here's what we've stated from the beginning. We've said that if we're going to be able to have the impact on the world for Jesus Christ that we've been called to have, that we down deep inside want to have, then we're going to have to have strong homes. We're going to have to show the world that Jesus actually does make a difference in the way we treat each other, husband and wife, and the way we treat our children and the way we raise them. And the stability and the strength of the home has a great deal to do with our ability to speak a message of truth and love and forgiveness and grace to the world. So goes the home, so goes the power of the message of the gospel from people who are communicating it. Now, we've talked a lot about the marriage. We've talked about wives. We've given wisdom for wives and helps for husbands, and we've looked through the dynamic of that relationship. And now we move into an arena where I want to talk about the sexual intimacy between husband and wife. Uh, The title of this message could be uh, bedroom, battleground, playground. Somebody this week said, how about ghost town? <laughs> and I thought, okay, all right. I think that pretty much says what I'm trying to say. Now, if you're a visitor here and you're thinking, why would a pastor honor talk about this? Let me tell you why I'm doing this. Number one is because Jesus talked about it. The apostle Paul talked about it. And an entire book called the song of Solomon in the old Testament talks about it. And so I'm in good company. Second, out of so many years of ministry, especially in these last 10 years, something that is meant to be a beautiful gift of God seems to be a real point of tension in the husband and wife relationship. And so I want to go back to the word of God to give us some wisdom of what the Bible says about this intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, before we do that, though, we have to make an agreement. We have to agree that Jesus is our teacher, that when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that he means it. When people approached Jesus in the first century, the philosophers approached him from the standpoint of their philosophical precepts. So if Jesus said something that didn't agree with their precepts, they shunned Jesus. Jesus makes it very clear that if you're going to be a Jesus follower, then that's the backwards way of doing it. The right way to do it is whatever you believe, whatever you feel, whatever is prevalent in your culture, if it is not consistent with what Jesus teaches, then he's not the one that changes, you do. And so we are, we are Jesus followers. We follow Christ, which means we want to know what he teaches. 
And we know that he's the standard. He's the measuring stick. So whatever he says about sexual intimacy between husband and wife, that's where we want to go. Now, having said that, uh, just uh, not too long ago, actually a few years ago now, when you get my age, everything seems to be happening so fast. Um, I was in a cafe with a guy that I'd been working on for a long time, a real intellectual type. And we'd spend a lot of time talking about the power of the gospel, the historical Jesus, the idea that something cannot possibly come from nothing, that God is the creator, designer of all that is. And I knew he was very close. So finally, after we'd been meeting for a while, I said, dude, I got to ask you something. You're so close. I can tell the look in your eyes when we talk about these things. It's almost like you want to step across the line, but you're, you're having difficulty. Can I ask you what gives? And he said, yeah, to tell you the truth, it's this whole Judeo-Christian sexual ethic. I just can't uh, take that on board. It's just outdated. It's archaic. And I asked him a question. Well, first he actually asked me when he says, Pastor Jeff, were you a virgin when you got married? And I said, yes, I was. I mean, I didn't put it in the bulletin or wear a neon side virgin or anything like that, <laughs> but I was. And he said, dude, and he stood up in this restaurant loud, dude, you must be the only virgin in California. Sit down, sit down, let's talk about this for a moment. And I asked him a simple question. I said, tell me something. Has your way added or taken away from your life? Immediately dropped his head. Three marriages and divorces. And the sexual promiscuity had basically, he said, I'm carrying baggage I don't know if I can ever get over. Andy Stanley, a friend of mine in Atlanta, Georgia, had the talk with his church. And after he comes out, there's a 35-year-old lady that said, hey, Pastor Stanley, can I ask you a question? This whole thing about no sex before marriage, that's just for teenagers, right? (laughs) And he said, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to spend with her, so I prayed to God for a soundbite. And here's what I said to her. I said, has sex outside of marriage made your life better or more complicated? And Andy says, as soon as I said that, the tears just began to flow. No matter what you say to yourself, you know down deep inside that this is a complicated issue. It's not easy. That it's not just flesh and tissue. That there's something about the sexual intimate act that includes much more than the flesh. It's body, it's soul, it's spirit. Something happens. If you lie to somebody, they'll recover. But if you sexually abuse somebody, it's a lifetime of ramifications. Which is why when a seven or eight-year-old girl is sexually abused, she carries that with her 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years right onto the grave. Because it is something more than just flesh and tissue. And it's why there are women in this room right now who somehow were abused or had sex forced upon them that are still living with those ramifications and they can't loose the change. They can't break the shackles. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Wow. What does he mean? It's almost like this type of sin is somehow different. And through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul tells us that our bodies and our identities, our self-respect, our sense of self, and the act of sex are inextricably tied together. You cannot separate them. It's not just a physical act. It's an act that impacts everything. I want to be very crystal clear about this. First of all, sexual intimacy is a good thing. It is a gift from God. The very first command in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. That's a man's favorite command. (laughs) Rabbis have found over 630 references to sexual union between husband and wife in the Torah alone, the first five books of the Bible. Let me say it again. Sex is a gift from God that is wholesome, glorious, wonderful, and good. And yet the Bible says when it's experienced out of context, not only does it not work, but the impact is devastating on the body, the physical, the soul, the mind, 
and even your intellectual capacities. So here's what I want to do, and I don't have a lot of time, and i got to cover a lot of material. Number one, I want to ask the question, what is the right context? Well, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, a very rich verse, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. Two separate verses. They sound like, well, we're talking about the same thing. Yes, we are. The Bible says basically this, you have one of two options, sexual immorality or take a wife. It's the Bible's way of saying this, that sex is only appropriate within the context of marriage. God designed the act of marriage to happen and occur in the act of marriage so that sexual intimacy is reserved for those who are married only. Now, if you're new in the church and it might be your first time and man, you're thinking, oh man, this is exactly why I don't like, like the church. This is so archaic. You gotta be kidding me. Before you do that, I want you to understand the context in which this is taught. Remember, I said before that when Jesus came on the scene, man, women had no rights. Jesus, women, have you have him to thank for changing the world. Because when he came along, he said, whoa, back on a minute. Something's wrong here. The way you're treating women as subservient, secondary citizens, forget it. There's no more of that. There's neither male nor female. We are equal in the essence of God. And part of the problem was the context in which Jesus and the apostle Paul spoke, most men had four sexual relationships. One was the gene, the wife. This is the person he married to give him a respectable home, to raise his children, take care of the children. It gave him status, wealth, money, and so on. But then he had a second relationship called the hetaira, which was the mistress. This was his intellectual equal. At least he saw her that way. He would engage in philosophical and political discussion with her, but she would also be his recreational companion and his sexual partner. Doesn't stop there. Third, there was a palike, a woman servant. It was all about sex, nothing more, nothing less. And then most men would engage in prostitution. In Corinth, there were a thousand temple prostitutes alone. And the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite, would be worshipped. What happens in Corinth would stay in Corinth. You don't think Las Vegas came up with that statement on their own, do you? <laughs> so when Jesus gives this, it would be normal for a man to enter in to intimacy with three or four women on a regular basis. Jesus comes along and says basically that traditionally women have received the abusive end of sex outside of marriage. And he says, enough of this. Brothers, we're not going to be like that. We're done with that. It's one man, one woman, your friend, your intellectual equal, your companion, your sexual partner, all wrapped up into one person, your wife. And that's the way it's going to be. Jesus says sex outside of marriage does not work, not only because it violates God, but because it violates women. This is Today with Jeff Vines and his message, Bedroom, Battleground, Playground, all about the marriage bed and why it is a sacred gift from God. Now, that's the context in which he said those words. But look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Again, look at the second part of that verse. He says, okay, this is the will of God, sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality, take a wife. And then he says, not like the heathen who do not know God. What is he talking about? Now, very few pastors will talk about this. Listen, here's the argument the Bible makes. It's far more than pragmatic. It's one of theology. The Bible says this. If you really knew God, you would know that sexual intimacy is designed within the marriage context. If you really knew God, why, why would he say that? Because the picture is God wanting to enter into covenant with you. But to enter into covenant with you, to bring us, those who are far from God, to God, 
It was a full body experience. God became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And he gave fully himself on the cross. He died for your sins. And therefore the core of the gospel is this. He entered into a full bodied commitment with you. And now as he gives his life in covenant, all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ enter into that covenant and we are forever saved. Now, how does that relate to sexual intimacy? Simply, before God would agree to penetrate you with his spirit, there had to be a full covenant commitment on both sides. So he takes that theological argument. He says, now apply that to the physical argument. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? The Bible teaches there is never intimacy without commitment. And there is never total intimacy without total commitment. That is the example of the gospel. And those who are believers should know this, but those who are not should not be expected to know this nor practice it. But those who know God know that before he would penetrate us with his spirit, there had to be full covenant and commitment on both sides. Now, how many of you have ever said the word yada, yada, yada? Anybody ever yada, yada, yada? You know where that word comes from? It's an Old Testament Hebrew word. It's used 500 times in the Old Testament. And it means not a sterile, abstract, or distant relationship. Yada describes the intimate relationship God wants to have with his people. This is the idea expressed when God says, I will betroth you to me and you will know, yada, you will know me. Deep, intimate knowledge. You see what the Bible's argument is this. When you lie down and take your clothes off, you're making a whole life commitment, which is only appropriate if you're married, if you have entered into the covenant of marriage. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives us his Holy Spirit. Here we go again. That's the third time I've shown you that the argument is that since God penetrated us with his spirit after full covenant, we don't penetrate each other until there's full commitment and covenant. It's the story and the message of the gospel. Now, someone will come to me, especially a young man and say, but I have made a full commitment. And I say, why don't you marry her then? And he will say, well, that's a man-made idea. You're kidding, right? No man would ever come up with the idea of commitment to one woman. (laughs) This is a God thing. And sometimes they'll say, well, I can't support her. That's my point. If you can't support her yet, full body commitment means that you're fully committed to her emotionally, economically, relationally. You're able to leave and cleave. You don't need mommy and daddy anymore. You're leaving and cleaving to each other. If you can't do that, you're not ready for marriage. A young girl came to me once and said, should I marry him? And I said, probably, but not yet. She said, why not yet? I said, because the baggage that he's carrying is too heavy. Wait till he deals with the baggage. Go to counseling. Get it sorted. Think about it. When you buy a car, man, you look under the hood. You take it to a mechanic. And if there's anything wrong, you make the dealership fix it before you buy it. And this is a car. If you're going to get married, you need to look under the hood. And when you find out what's wrong, you go to counseling, you get it sorted before you give full life commitment. And if you're not able to give full life commitment, then those are stolen waters. Full body commitment, full life commitment, full intimacy. Now, the difficult thing is that he goes on, he keeps writing. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse three, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. 
And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Now, here's an imperative command. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, here's what we see. Intimacy, union, after an ultimate covenant has been made, is not only a beautiful gift of God, not only a privilege, but a responsibility. It's not only a privilege, but giving yourself away to your spouse is a responsibility. And he says, be careful of depriving. Do you see? No, he doesn't say that. He, it's more strong. In the original language, it's a, it's a command of do not deprive each other. Because if you do, it will open the door to temptation. That is, God knows our weakness. Sympathizes with it. Now, I want to speak to you women first. And then I want to speak to you men and make a final argument. First to the women. Number one, your husband's interest in the act of marriage is powerful, persistent, and normal. Your husband's interest in the act of marriage is powerful, persistent, and normal. Robert Louis Cole looks at the painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware with his men. And he's astounded by the, by the painting. And he asks the question, what are these guys thinking? Their facial expressions and this grim resolve as they approach the battle that will determine their fates and the fate of the American Revolution. What are they thinking? Will we have sufficient artillery on the other side? What kind of enemy awaits us on the other side? Will we have sufficient power and fortitude? And Robert Louis Cole says, get real. They're not thinking any of that. They're only thinking this. Are there any women over there in New Jersey? (laughs) Psychiatrists and counselors tell us that women think about sex once a day, and it's not always positive. Men think about... 33 times a day, 33 times a day. Your husband's interest in the act of marriage is powerful, persistent, and normal. He's not abnormal because he has those thoughts. And most women severely underestimate their husband's appetite to engage in the act of marriage. Uh, Dr. Kevin Lehman, and I use him because he's not a Christ follower. He's been on Oprah. He's been on Good Morning America. He has no ax to grind. He was the university professor at Arizona, the dean of students, actually. He says this. Now, this is not in the Bible, and Jesus didn't say this, and Pastor Jeff didn't say this. He said this. He says, as a counselor, I am now prepared to tell this to young women who are contemplating marriage. If you are not willing right now to make a commitment to the act of marriage at least two to three times a week for the rest of your life with this man, then don't marry him. Wow. Wow. <laughs> It took a while, but we got it. Now, ladies hear this and they respond by saying this. My goodness, what on earth is wrong with men? Get a life. There are other things, you know. Why don't they expend some of this energy on mowing the grass or doing the dishes or taking out the trash, right? Now, that was your turn to say amen, women. But that brings me to the second principle. The act of marriage is to your husband what affection is to you. Do you hear that? The act of marriage is to your husband what affection is to you. A husband's craving for the act of marriage is no more selfish than a wife's craving for affection. It's the same thing. Think about it, ladies. Affection is to you what lingerie is to men. A guy can have a horrible day. His relationship with his wife's not going well. He walks in the door. There she is to greet him in lingerie. That's one of the dreams that he has, by the way. It never actually happens. But she's there, she's there to meet him in lingerie. Man, within second, boom, the launch sequence has been activated. 
right? But the point is, you're mistaken if you think you can't activate the launch sequence of your wife. It just doesn't happen with you in Speedos. (laughs) When my wife and I were struggling in this area, this is a genuine struggle that we were having. And there was a time in our marriage where we were growing apart, man. It was a tough time in our marriage. Happens to everybody, pastor, no pastor. We were just growing apart. Most of it was because we don't know what we're getting into when we got married. We did premarital counseling, but it wasn't with John Brainerd. Like some of you have had the privilege of going through. We, we had a loser, loser for premarital counseling. <laughs> the only thing I learned out of it was make sure you take a shower after basketball practice. Really? That's all you got? I learned something about my wife. And this is the only time I'm going to step across the line just a little And I learned that foreplay happens a week, at least a week out. And it happens when I empty the dishwasher, run the vacuum, bathe the kids, read bedtime stories to them, have devotions with them, pray with them. When I take Robin for a coffee or a long walk or have a conversation about our future, that that activates the launch sequence. But it can't happen like in an hour. That's got to start like seven days before. (laughs) And I've learned, I've learned that the great, here's the beauty of it though. I've learned that the greater and the longer the affection, the more intense and passionate the act of marriage becomes. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We'll continue with Bedroom, Battleground, Playground next time on the program. The act of marriage cannot take place in the midst of unresolved conflict. To hear more messages or information from Pastor Jeff, you can head to our website, vision.org.au, and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.